everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Hydrogen Nowcast, recorded on August 3rd, 2020. This is a podcast devoted to encouraging the deployment of fuel cell EVs, hydrogen fueling, and hydrogen infrastructure throughout the world. The Hydrogen Nowcast is a production of the Colorado Hydrogen Network in Denver, Colorado. In each podcast, we'll interview the people, organizations, companies, and municipalities that are working to produce or deploy hydrogen technology. We'll discuss their plans and strategies, successes, and lessons learned. Our intent is to encourage and motivate others to take charge, to help deploy hydrogen as a means to decarbonize transportation, and accelerate the movement to stop climate change. I'm Brian DeBruin, the Director of Operations for the Colorado Hydrogen Network. My guests today on the Hydrogen Nowcast are Andrew Thomas, the Director of Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative in Cleveland, and Mark Henning, the research associate with the collaborative, and you're both affiliated with Cleveland State University. So, Andrew and Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thanks, Brian. So, this is the second show that the Hydrogen Nowcast has done featuring an organization in Ohio because really there's a lot of hydrogen activity going on in Ohio. Um, in just the last episode, episode five, I interviewed Chris McWinney, who's the CEO of Millennium Rain Energy in Dayton. And, of course, another example is SARTA, the Stark Area Regional Transit Authority in Cleveland, which I understand has 13 fuel cell buses and is actively promoting fuel cell buses to other transit authorities. Now, you guys can probably name some other examples. Yeah, actually, SARTA will have 17 buses, I believe, by the end of buses and paratransits together by the end of next year. So they're they're expanding that. We're increasing the number of uh, so, but they're all revolve around one fuel cell uh, or one hydrogen refueling station located in at the Sardust bus depot in Canton, Ohio. So, but yes, there are a lot of other activities going on in Ohio. You know, this really goes back to when uh, Ohio decided back in the mid two thousands that it wanted to be a leader in the uh, in the world of fuel cells. There were a number of folks who were involved in, at that time, which was the Ohio Department of Development and universities that felt that fuel cells and hydrogen were going to be very disruptive technologies for the Midwest because the Midwest is so dependent upon the internal combustion engine as a, uh, as a way of manufacturing. And so uh, there was a significant amount of money that was spent in Ohio to try to get uh, a you know a fuel cell industry jump started in the region and over a hundred thousand or hundred million dollars I, I would say was probably spent at that time uh, between grants and uh, and a number of loans that were provided and you know as these things go they you know it takes a long time for this stuff to happen and we're finally starting to see some of this happen uh, and a lot of companies out there now that are operating were beneficiaries of that of those grants to, uh, you know, to get seated and get started. And so, yeah, Ohio has uh, become sort of an epicenter of not so much of the fuel cell systems being that are being, or we don't really have a lot of integrators. We do have a few small fuel cell integrators, but we do have a, a large number of supply chain folks, uh, people who build components that go into fuel cells, especially things like electrodes and control systems and graphite plates and things like that that are, are really significant in Ohio. Probably most of the fuel cells built in America 
have some components. I should say it include not just America, but North America, Canada as well as, you know, which has a lot of uh, fuel cell and manufacturing, but they all have some components from Ohio in them. So yeah, to answer your question, we, we certainly do have a, a major presence in the fuel cell industry in Ohio. We don't have a lot of the big name companies um, like uh, Ballard or Fuel Cell Energy that are located here, but we have some other major folks that are uh, located in Ohio, like Denora, that have a significant presence in the fuel cell industry. Well, thanks, Andy. And, um, you know, I've always been impressed with the, I'll call it the manufacturing prowess in Ohio. I mean, with the, the big cities of uh, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, and, and other places. Um, and of course, Ohio is not very far from Detroit, which is probably a big consumer of a lot of manufactured goods. So uh, I know that the skills and the technology and the the expertise is there. I don't know, Mark, do you have any examples you want to comment on? No, well, I mean, yeah, nothing <laughs> comes to mind, but just thinking about um, the Detroit area and Toledo in particular, when it comes to large consumers of hydrogen, um, the, the oil refinery there, but also increasingly for steel manufacturing. So I, it's sort of interesting from my perspective, you know, where the really large industrial consumers of hydrogen who will be you know, driving this conversation and the demand for hydrogen, you know, what their plans are for increasing their usage of, of hydrogen for their manufacturing processes. And so we definitely have that in Ohio, you know, especially in Toledo and, and Cleveland with our, you know, especially in steel and iron production. In your, your thought, Brian, that uh, you, Ohio and Michigan both uh, have been leaders historically in manufacturing, especially automotive manufacturing, is exactly what the folks in Ohio, the you know the thought leaders in Ohio were, were contemplating at the time in the mid 2000s when they decided to make this investment. Uh, they're sitting around saying, you know, look, Ohio, and Michigan are filled with what they call legacy cities, and it, this is kind of a, a nice way now of saying Rust Belt cities, places like Detroit, Toledo, Lorraine, Cleveland, Youngstown, Canton, Akron. These are you know all the way to Buffalo are all cities that have struggled mightily with the uh, advent of new technologies and uh, yet still maintain a, you know, a major presence in the transportation industry. And so this is, you know, basically what the uh, Ohio economic development folks were thinking is that let's get in on the front end of, of this transition. Problem was, is that they were, you know, probably 20 years too soon on it, not in terms of of what needed to be done. That actually was done properly. The problem is, is that, you know, that when you're a politician or even if you're the leader of a corporation, you don't really have the luxury of thinking 20 years down the line. When you invest in research and development, you have a relatively short window of, you want to start seeing success stories and, and those companies start to build out huge numbers of jobs. And, and that's starting to happen now, but you know, the folks who were running the state back in 2005 didn't have that luxury of waiting for 15 or 20 years for all that to come to pass. And we're just now starting to see that come to pass in Ohio. Well, why don't we switch our attention for a minute to uh, the Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative, which you guys are both members of. Um, Andy, you want to maybe start and just Tell a little bit about the organization and how you got started and so forth. And then, I don't know, Mark, if you've got any comments to jump in, too, on that. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in first on this. Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative uh, and it has a sister organization called the Midwest Hydrogen Center of Excellence. Uh, those were started in 2016, both by Stark Area Regional Transit Authority, which we'll call SARDA. Uh, you mentioned earlier, SARDA has a fleet of uh, 13 buses now, hydrogen fuel cell buses now, and expanded to 17 uh, soon. Uh, Sar- Canton, Ohio is not a, a, you know, a really large city. It, the, the entire county has a population of around 400,000 people, and the transit agency is is a mid-sized transit agency. It's not really large transit agency, and it sort of gave them some advantages and some disadvantages. And uh, one of the advantages is they had a lot of flexibility, and they were able to uh, to move forward with a vision by just a couple of people, most notably the CEO of uh, SARDA, Kurt Conrad. Uh, and they were able to respond to that pretty quickly, and, and by assembling a uh, a fleet of fuel cell buses. And so that was started in 2016 with FTA grants. And some of that FTA money was uh, steered towards the development of the Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative with the idea that that collaborative would do certain things that would you know, lead to more rapid adoption of the uh, uh, zero emission buses, in particular hydrogen fuel cell zero emission buses. It took a leap of faith on the part of SARDA to do this because you know it's, it wasn't clear then, in fact, it's still not clear today, what technologies are going to be the ones that are uh, going to be the most viable technologies for transit. But back in 2016, when SARDA started this, their view was that the best fit for them was going to be the fuel cell electric buses because of uh, cold weather climate. You know, fuel cell buses tend to respond better to cold weather than battery electric does. And also because of the uh, range that buses had. So they, the long-term plan would be then that they would just replace on a one-to-one basis their diesel electric buses with, I'm sorry, their diesel fuel buses with fuel cell electric buses. You know, even though that first cost of building that infrastructure was going to be really high, uh, meaning the hydrogen refueling station, it still was lower for them in the long term than all the recharging infrastructure that would be required for battery electrics. So, you know, whether that ultimately proves all to be accurate we remains to be seen, but that's that was kind of what SARTA was thinking when they started all this. So they uh, they began we began this venture. Um, Ohio State was part of that originally, and as was uh, a number of other collaborators. Obviously, Cleveland State now is a big collaborator, but there were national labs. Uh, CalSTART and the Center for Transportation and Environment, or CTE, are also major collaborators, and, and others like OFCC has a, as well. The goals of this organization were to demonstrate zero emission technology, create operational training records for other transit agencies to look at, uh, make them publicly available. And other goals were to uh, undertake research, uh, which we've done a lot of in the last two years, that is designed to enable the adoption of fuel cell buses and to enhance public awareness, both with the uh, decision makers and the general public as well. So that's kind of been where what we've been working on, you know, in terms of the strategy for the RHFCC since 2016. Do we want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the initiatives or plans and so forth uh, 
for the RHFCC and maybe talk a bit about the sponsors and members and, and how that works. And I don't know, Mark, you, you want to make a comment on that? Oh, some of the sponsors and members of the RHFCC. That would maybe be more of an Andy question. I, I mean, whenever I think of the RHFCC, I do think of Kirk Conrad's leadership and Andy's leadership. I mean, it's their vision, especially for the state of, of Ohio. I mean, they're amongst the, the thought leaders for you know, what is the future of hydrogen in our state? I mean, sometimes it's you know, part of our role at, at the RHFCC is creating awareness. And sometimes it's an, uh, an uphill battle when people are so familiar with battery electric technology and they are caught unaware as when you mentioned hydrogen fuel cells and it's like well i didn't even realize this was still a thing i thought that was passe so our uh, our members though i'm trying to think andy but I mean, you've got the the ohio fuel cell coalition and some of their members um but especially kirk conrad and sarda are actively involved um in what we do and in, in setting our agenda and our, our our research agenda and our, our outreach agenda. Yeah, I, I kind of think of them more as collaborators than members. I, I don't think, our, I mean, I don't think RHFCC actually has a membership. It is a, uh, it has one sponsor and that's sort of, that probably will change. You know, we've been doing some outreach for some other sponsors, but uh, we've lots of collaborators, which Mark Carter mentioned. And well, the one thing that Mark has been involved actively on uh, more so than I have, has been education. So this is, I would say, and I'll let him describe that education efforts, but, you know, the things that we've been doing, we've been doing development of working groups and training for transit agencies. CalSTART's been leading that initiative. Uh, we've been doing dissemination of results to transit agencies, uh, public officials, and uh, state transportation agencies, uh, you know, throughout the Midwest. And then research, which has been really our focus the last two years. And, and part of the thinking was when we'd made this transition into research was that we were struggling to really move the needle on public dissemination and public awareness. It was, we just was not a terribly receptive audience between 2016 and 2018, 2019 timeframe. And so we decided to hunker down for a couple of years and really focus on research and now we're sort of coming out of that period, and we are going to now start reworking the dissemination side of it. But And part of that will be the educational initiatives, and Mark can describe what some of the things we've been doing with that. Yes, yeah, so one, one of the, the main things, and for me, one of the most enjoyable things that we've done is we uh, were involved with Willisarda, but also with, um, I guess it's Columbus State. But we took one of Sarda's uh, fuel cell buses around to middle schools in Canton, Cleveland, Columbus. And it wasn't just uh, to describe fuel cell technology. It was about uh, clean energy in, in general. But then the key demonstration piece was one of the, the hydrogen fuel cell buses that we showed to you know, 10, 11, 12-year-olds and uh, taught them about the, the technology, how it works, the emissions related to producing propulsion uh, from both fossil fuels and from battery electric vehicles and fuel cell electric vehicles and trying to disseminate you know, knowledge more from a life cycle perspective. It's like, you know, there's the, the idea of okay, how, how is your energy being produced? How is it being delivered? And, you know, what, is, what are some of the clean options? Well, here's one of the options, one of these you know, hydrogen fuel cell buses really, you know, make you feel good when you, you're when we talk about like the future, looking into the future and who's going to be taking us to these new technologies and implementing them in, in earnest. And you see sort of the excitement of, you know, the future engineers and scientists, these 
middle schoolers, just trying to expose them to clean energy technology in general, but then also as part of our role, the, the hydrogen fuel cell technology uh, will be what's on the horizon. So they sort of expand their minds beyond just battery electric. And again, I forgive me for, you know, harping on that too much, but it's, it does sort of get lost in the conversation, the, uh, the hydrogen option. Um, so I think that's one thing that we've done in terms of to, uh, outreach. And I, I'd like to see us uh, pick that up some more in the future. But of course, right now with COVID, that's kind of difficult. But it's definitely something we, important that we do to, as far as our, our outreach and, and showing off the technology. Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, and I, and I agree that uh, batteries have kind of stolen the stage right now, but uh, hopefully that changes to uh, give a little bit of limelight to fuel cells. So we kind of started out, we jumped in talking all about hydrogen and the Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative. Let's talk a little bit about your personal backgrounds, because I think you're both uh, affiliated with the university as well as with RHFCC. So I don't know, Mark, why don't you tell us your background a little bit and, and some of the things you do, and then Andy, you can uh, come after Mark. Yeah, I uh, first came to the, the the center, Andy's Energy Policy Center, and the Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative as a, as a graduate assistant. Um, I was a student at Cleveland State, um, both as an undergraduate and then as a, as a graduate assistant. And uh, one of the first projects we worked on, uh, that I worked on, was uh, looking at deploying a microgrid in downtown Cleveland. And so I've been involved in, in that, the, the energy storage roadmap, as you mentioned. And so these were all different projects that I worked on as a graduate assistant. And things worked out so that I was able to, to stay on as a, as a full-time research associate. So my, my background, though, is more in uh, statistics and economics. And so and as you sort of gather from the roadmaps, looking at the economic, but also the geographic relationships, you know, what assets are located in close proximity where you can leverage those those assets and and that close proximity can drive um, you know increased growth and innovation and development than than what does otherwise occur. So that's more more my background is data analysis and uh, geographic information systems and that sort of thing. So I'm sure as you probably have gathered by now, you know Mark is the young guy and I'm the old guy, and, and so we're sort of doing a passing of the baton here in the world of energy, we encompass so much in between electricity, transportation, and energy markets. And But a lot of the work that we do has uh, eventually moved into the area of economics and economic development, which is uh, really where Mark shines. And he's added tremendous capacity for our the Energy Policy Center at Cleveland State in that regards. Uh, because my own background is is as an attorney, and uh, and I worked as a geophysicist for Shell Oil Company for about ten years prior to being an attorney, and statistical modeling and economics are things that I am not so good at. Uh, in fact, I'm not good at them at all. But I have, you know, like any lawyer can do, I have a kind of a, a skill set in taking complicated things and trying to explain them in a manner that the public can understand. And so that's sort of what we do. We write white papers. We occasionally do peer-reviewed research, but mostly they're white papers that we put together on a variety of topics in the energy business that are designed to influence policy and to uh, help the public and, and policymakers understand uh, the implications of their decisions. You know, I worked in New Orleans 
for Shell Oil Company for around 10 years. And then I worked at a law firm in New Orleans doing energy law. And then I moved to Ohio in uh, 2002 and uh, just as part of the, um, you know, when Ohio was starting to get really heavily involved in this fuel cell business. And that my decision to do that was directly related to the, you know, what I was seeing in Louisiana about the oil and gas industry, that which is that our society had become too reliant on, on uh, oil and that, you know, that our Louisiana at least was an extractive economy and, and that this was long-term bad for our climate and bad for our economy to continue on the path we were going on. So I, I came up to Ohio to get involved in the fuel cell business, which I did for about 10 years before joining Cleveland State in, uh, in around 2010, where we started up this energy policy center, which we've been operating ever since. So I was actively involved in fuel cells uh, in the industry for about five years, and then I uh, left it to start up this center. And then uh, I came back to it, though, when Sarda called and said, hey, we need somebody to run this hydrogen fuel cell collaborative. Would you be interested? And, and I said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, basically, around 2018, I got back involved in the fuel cell business again. And boy, this time around, it's so much more exciting because I feel like it is a the technology is there now. You know, 10 years ago, the fuel cells didn't have the track records they do now. Uh, there were problems with platinum loading and the costs associated with fuel cells and how long they would last. 10 years ago, the price of hydrogen was really high. And today it's really low. And it looks like it will stay low for a long time. So, you know, everything really has been solved for the fuel cell industry except for refueling infrastructure which continues to be a problem for it but that's how i got involved in in this and you noted we do a lot of other research outside of hydrogen and i think that one of the overarching principles of the energy policy center and uh, also with sarda and the renewable hydrogen fuel cell collaborative is we're trying to understand how these different energy systems are going to merge and the different systems are primarily the systems that are related to transportation, which has its own world, electricity generation and distribution, which has its own world, and then the new system, which is kind of overlapping in all this, which is the information systems. And that really is a merger of those three concepts together is, uh, you know, the future of the, of the economy and the environmental impact as well. And so we we really need to try to understand those things. And they all kind of relate to electrons at some level. I mean, hydrogen, you know, is is really an electron in the same way that an electron is on the, you know, on the wires. And so these are all things that are kind of merging. The information technology is kind of related to that as well. And so <clears throat> that's sort of where we have focused a lot of our research in particular as Mark was talking about the microgrids. Where the, the microgrids are going is, the, or at least our grid is going, is they increase the need for uptime. You know, that's where microgrids really shine. They have that resiliency and capability of delivering five or six, nine, meaning, you know, 99.9999% uptime. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, something that's going to be more and more needed as our economies become more and more dependent upon data. So that, that you know, the transit industry as well, uh, transportation, will be looking at this as well. And, and it's not just about driverless cars. It's going to be about just the ability of systems to be able to communicate with each other. And, and all of that is uh, all merging together. And it's a really interesting area to be in right now. 
Well, you know what uh, you both have just talked about, and, and Mark talked about it explicitly of roadmaps. And uh, Andy, it sounds like with your experience doing white papers and other documents, that that's where your mindset is too. And I know that you both produced what was called the uh, Energy Storage Roadmap for Northeast Ohio, which I read and I thought it was really first rate. And I, I compliment you guys on, on that. I thought it was very thorough and, and complete. You know, I believe that uh, a roadmap should make recommendations on where to go and show the paths to get there. And I think that you both succeeded at that. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's taking, well, first taking stock of where you are, what you have, what your assets are, and then taking a lot of time to, to dig into market studies. You know, what, what are the technologies? I mean, you know, there, there are technologies that maybe 20 or 30 years down the road could come to fruition, but they're still at, at a state, at, at an early stage of development, uh, an early stage of technological readiness. But rather than that, what are the, the, the areas that are five to 10 years down the, the road? that you know we have i mean here in northeast ohio with our focus that that we have expertise in and so the roadmap was about identifying where those two things merge our, our inherent expertise in certain areas with regard to you know electrochemistry and then um, you know, future developments in, in different battery technologies or energy storage technologies where there is projected to be a lot of growth yeah so actually that, that's the, the interesting thing about you know our region though is in that regard is not just um, capitalizing on you know, explicit or uh, energy storage or what would seem on the surface energy storage, but things like polymer sciences or additive manufacturing, other areas where we're strong in. And again, with this theme of, of interactions between different areas, you know, that we are looking at something that it's not just you know, batteries, it's about other technologies that enable batteries to perform better or to like with uh, with regard to some of our companies um, in the Internet of Things space and the industrial Internet of Things, those those technologies that allow you to operate more efficiently, to manufacture more efficiently, and to satisfy your customer base more efficiently. So th this is an area where, because Mark was the primary author of that study, and we have gotten some really nice comments about about that study. Um, <clears throat> you know, Mark was able to use, I mean, you know, I, I talked before about his statistical background and how that's helped us with market studies and our effects of cold weather on battery and fuel cells. But this is where his background in uh, urban studies really came into play is his understanding of data sets. He was able to go in and ascertain data sets from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and look at geographic information systems and, and uh, sorted other data sets to be able to try to, including NAICS codes, to try to be able to figure out exactly what the assets are for the region in Northeast Ohio in this case. And then to you know, look at how much growth we've actually seen in the past seven years and compare it to you know, what, you know, where projections are for continued growth by the industry. And it turned out to be something that was enabled him to be able to actually come out with a series of recommendations, like you were saying, that are tied specifically to how region, uh, you know, to the region's ability to develop a cluster in this uh, particular technology. And this particular technology is, you know, is really more than just electrochemistry. And that's certainly a, a big driver with, you know, our universities and NASA and things like that located here. But 
but it's really about applications. And, and that's sort of the part that I think Mark really added significant value is understanding how these different batteries and, and other storage technologies can be used to um, develop applications and growth and things like the Internet of Things and 3D printing and stuff like that that we are seeing evolving very rapidly in, in the region. So most recently, the uh, Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative posted a research paper, which, bear with us here, the title's kind of long, but uh, it's called How the Midwest Can Lead the Hydrogen Economy, Matching Generation Assets to Distribution Markets in Planning Hydrogen Refueling Infrastructure for Trucking and Transit. So quite a, quite a title. But uh, you want to tell us a little bit about what you sought to accomplish with that research and what some of your findings were? I think we were looking again at assets that we have in the region for, in this case, for producing uh, hydrogen, and in particular, um, nuclear hydrogen um, conversion. And this is something that the Department of Energy is is looking a lot at: is how how can the nuclear fleet be converted to producing more hydrogen? I mean, they're facing, I guess, we call operational difficulty. And you may later get into the politics of nuclear energy in the Midwest. But you know, because of natural gas, these power producers have a have a difficult time competing for electricity generation. So are there other things that they can produce, uh, other ways they can use their, their capital and their assets to be competitive and to, to operate efficiently? And one area could be producing hydrogen uh, through electrolysis. And one of the, and again, with this theme of, okay, where does that intersect? It is with the, what we see as the, the early likely adopters of, of hydrogen fuel cell transportation is more on the heavy duty side. And so you've got these large producers, which we would envision as nuclear fleet in the Midwest, which are scattered in pretty close proximity to um, the, the interstate corridor I-80 uh, slash I-90 that runs through northern Ohio up through uh, Minneapolis. And so you've got this potential source of hydrogen and along that route, a potential uh, large demand for hydrogen in the form of class eight trucks or long haul heavy duty trucks. And we see that those uh, trucks are more likely to use, if they're going to be transitioning to cleaner energy, it's going to be more um, hydrogen fuel cells as opposed to uh, battery electric uh, technology just because of energy density issues, like the the size of the battery that you would need to propel a semi down the road with a full load would would not be economical. It would just be too large to make any, any sense. That's one area where hydrogen fuel cell vehicles have shown that they have the the power. And in particular, I'm thinking of cases out, early demonstration cases out in California at the the ports in particular of uh, Long Beach and Los Angeles, where they're employing these sorts of trucks to offload freight. And they are seeing, as Andy mentioned, more of a a one-to-one basis of conversion from traditional fossil fuels to fuel cell vehicles. And so we would see that intersection there in the Midwest of potential producers of hydrogen in the form of the nuclear fleet and users, large users of hydrogen in terms of the trucking fleet, and that these things may intersect. And they may intersect, they may be more prone to intersect in our region here in the Midwest just because of what we have already existing in terms of our nuclear power plants and in terms of the, tr- or in terms of the interstate 
at the way it is, is, is so close to those plants. I could add a couple of things to that. One of them is that remember that the Midwestern states do not have clean energy, or at least we do not have zero emission transportation mandates. So that's, that's a very difficult problem for the Midwest to overcome. We, we have the economic incentives to, to want to be you know, the, the leader in the adoption of, of hydrogen technologies and hydrogen both as a industrial gas, uh, like in, for instance, iron reduction, and also in refueling, uh, because those, those are you know, both really ways to reduce carbon emissions significantly. Uh, but it's hard to do that without the zero emissions mandate. And <clears throat> so we're struggling in that regard. Uh, on the other side of the, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast both have these. And uh, so, you know, it remains to be seen whether it's the pull of those mandates or the push of the, uh, of the econ- economic uh, reasons for doing all this that make these go forward. But you know, they're all working uh, towards that same goal. I think eventually we're going to see the adoption of, of all the states of, of, you know, this hydrogen economy, hopefully sooner than later. But that is, uh, you know, that's the part we didn't really fully evaluate uh, in, in this study. We didn't really look at the role that those zero emission mandates have. We just recognize that they are significant. But, you know, the, the upshot of, of the study, I thought one of the most important things, at least that I didn't fully understand until Mark did this study as well, is that the transportation costs of hydrogen are the major impediment uh, to cheap refueling. Yeah, I was going to uh, just bring that up. Where when we look at the the, the cost of hydrogen per kilogram, it's uh, a very small portion of it is the production of hydrogen. At least fifty percent, upwards of eighty percent, is in the distribution and dispensing of hydrogen. And so, I mean, we've really gotten quite close. For um, when we're talking about producing hydrogen both from uh, natural gas, but also through electrolysis, we can reach uh, some of the Department of Energy. We're close to reaching the Department of Energy's goals of, I think it's $2 a kilogram for the, uh, just on the production side of of producing hydrogen. Uh, But when it comes to distributing it and getting it to the source of use, we, we, we still have work to do. Yeah. Hydrogen is a difficult thing to transport because it's, yeah. it's so voluminous. Um, yeah. I, I almost a few times have said it's like a fool's errand to try to transport it. But, you know, like you say, with electrolysis, if you can make it at the point of use, that helps, although you've got to have pretty low um, cost electricity to do that. Yes. So uh, we kind of touched on it. Maybe this brings us around to talking a little bit about uh, public policy and maybe we could talk about the political climate for renewable energy in Ohio. Now, Ohio has deregulated electricity generation, but Colorado doesn't. And so what has this really meant for the electricity costs in Ohio, and and how does this figure into clean energy planning? It turns out that Colorado and uh, Ohio have very similar electricity costs. Um, You know, to the end user, the commercial users are both paying around 10 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's not clear that one system is better than the other, just based on that. In terms of reducing costs, it has significantly made a difference in Ohio, though, uh, in terms of reducing costs. And we did a study several years ago looking at six Midwestern states and comparing the cost of electricity. We picked three regulated and three deregulated states, the, the regulated states being Wisconsin, Michigan, and Indiana, 
and the deregulated states being Illinois, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And based upon that, we determined that Ohio ratepayers are saving about a billion dollars a year in expenses for electricity. And uh, we've seen prices drop dramatically in Ohio as a result of deregulation. It wasn't really obvious for a long time because Ohio deregulated in 2003. But it wasn't until 2008 or 2009 that markets first came to Ohio. And that we actually started to see the development of a robust retail market for electricity. And when that happened, uh, the prices started to drop dramatically. And uh, in addition, it, was, it wasn't just that retail market. It was also the fact that the state started to require that utilities have auctions for the standard service offers. So if you don't chop, if you don't do choice for your electricity, you fall into the standard service offer, and that would be something that you would fall into. Those prices drop dramatically as well. And so between the two, we've seen you know, these massive savings in Ohio as a result of deregulation. And for that reason, I don't see us changing our strategy anytime soon in Ohio. Although we have had numerous assaults on our uh, system by the utilities, especially First Energy, trying to uh, have the regulated, the deregulated costs, the generation costs, bleed into the regulated side. So, which you can imagine gives them lots of advantages against their competition. And the question that you asked is, is how, what does that matter to the, to the renewable or clean energy technologies and adoption? And it's a good question, and I'm not entirely sure yet that we have an answer to that. I think, I mean, first and foremost, the price is the biggest issue. The biggest obstacle in Ohio to clean energy is our cheap, cheap, cheap electricity. But it's pretty much the same in Colorado where you guys are fully regulated there. And so you have to beat 10 cents if you want to, uh, to be able to build the electricity. But it's more than just the 10 cents because you have to do it in a way that is readily available to the end user at that price. And so, you know, in Ohio, we have net metering, which I'm sure you do in Colorado as well. Net metering is really important to the viability, economic viability of, of these clean energy technologies. So in Ohio, we started with deregulation around 2003. Uh, it was originally championed by the utilities, especially First Energy, who was paid billions of dollars for stranded assets, and they loved it. But over time, uh, we saw that conditions changed dramatically. And then around 2008, uh, when we had uh, you know, the recession hit, at the same time the renewable portfolio standards hit in Ohio and the energy efficiency standards hit in Ohio. And we saw what was happening for the first time in Ohio was we, and actually nationally, we saw for the first time where the GDP and rates of consumption separated. They used to be always tied very closely. If the GDP went up, consumption went up with it. In Ohio, we started seeing in and around that time where prices started to go down and consumption went down <laughs> and prices went down too. But so a lot of it had to do with these energy efficiency standards the, and the uh, prices coming down had to do with uh, natural gas coming cheap. And in fact, Ohio had this record spark spread, which means the difference on an MMBTU basis between the natural gas and electricity where we started to see a lot of new you know, natural gas getting brought into the state, where we had maybe 5%. Now we're up to about 30% natural gas, and that's rising every day in Ohio. So these are the, you know, the kind of the things that were going on. Ultimately, in, you know, there was a pushback as the utilities began to hunker down and say, well, wait a minute, these new strategies that you've introduced have basically undermined our profitability. And so 
2014, there was a freeze that was passed by the General Assembly on our renewable portfolios and our energy efficiency portfolio standards. And uh, that, you know, later a permanent freeze was passed. Uh, that was just a temporary freeze. The permanent freeze, though, got vetoed by the then governor, Don Kasich. And so it sat there, you know, for a couple of more years. And then we started to see, you know, during this time, there was a constant assault by the utilities of uh, looking for cross-subsidies from there into their uh, generation side. Ultimate problem with deregulation is that you have a, you know, if you allow your generators to also be distributors, inevitably they're on the distribution side, they're going to get a, a guaranteed rate of return of 11% on their costs. So they want to push as much of their cost as possible into the side that is regulated. And we, we've seen that ongoing for years in Ohio, sometimes successful, sometimes not by the utilities. But ultimately, First Energy just got tired of, of dealing with all this. And they decided, you know what, let's see if we can get a subsidy passed in Ohio for nuclear. In the, it's similar to what they did in, in uh, Illinois, where they passed a, a subsidies for uh, nuclear. On the, in Illinois, it was passed based upon the idea that it was uh, zero emissions. And, and that was how it began in Ohio as well, as zero emissions uh, subsidy. But we can get into House Bill 6 uh, discussion if you like, but that's you know kind of the history of the regulated versus deregulated side of the business. You know, I think the upshot is, is that low prices generally make renewable power more difficult to put in. And there are a number of other regulatory issues that are coming. Uh, one of them is who's going who's gonna to own and control microgrids. You know, this is going to revolutionize the way our grid works. And this really kind of relates to the smart grid idea. The, this is the smart grids basically have bi-directional flow of electrons and you, they just get dispatched wherever they're needed. And, you know, you need to have a, a system that has capability, resiliency and capability of, of uh, you know, delivering electrons bi-directionally. And, and the uh, utilities position on this is, yeah, we, we'll build microgrids. Uh, just turn that all over to us and we'll build it and charge you the 11% rate of return. And, and maybe that's, in some states, that might be the way to go. Uh, and it's tempting, uh, even in Ohio. But, you know, the problem is, is our history is that if we allow the utilities to just take over that sort of uh, technology, they either don't get built or, or they, you know, they get gold-plated and they cost too much. So it's, you know, we'll see how that plays out because I think that's going to be the next major fight in Ohio on the regula regulation side. Well, things are really changing, and um, I think we've all got to be vigilant um, to realize that once these battles uh, may be won, they may, not, they may not stay won. We've got to be careful. So uh, probably a lesson for all of us. Well, Andrew, Mark, uh, this has been a really great discussion. Where can listeners learn more about the Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative um, in Cleveland? So um, I can give you the uh, URL to, to find us. It's uh, www.midwesthydrogen.org. You can find the Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative and the Midwest Hydrogen Center for Excellence there. For the Energy Policy Center at Cleveland State, it's levin.urban.csuohio.edu slash EPC slash. I know that I read those pretty, qu pretty quick, but that's, uh, those are our URLs. They're hard to um, communicate over 
podcast. <laughs> well, there's also a link for the Renewable Hydrogen Fuel Cell Collaborative on the Colorado Hydrogen Network, which is www.colorado-hydrogen.org. So, um, Mark, any closing comments before we end the show? Uh, no, just uh, thank you very much for, for having us on. You appreciate uh, any involvement we can have with your your group. I mean, Andy and I are both you know impressed with you know, how much you guys have already done with your group in Colorado, and uh, we look forward to seeing what, what what you will do and how we could collaborate with you in the future in supporting you. Great. Well, thank you, um, Andy. Any closing comments? Well, let's let's see if we can figure out a way to uh, connect Colorado and Ohio on yes that hydrogen highway hydrogen corridor. Yeah, we're uh, we're definitely working on that. We want to have a spine and everything else can kind of grow off of that and an east-west spine across the country. So, all right. Well, listeners, if you enjoy listening to the Hydrogen Nowcast, please give us a rating in your podcast app. A good rating helps us be discovered by other people. And also word of mouth recommendations are really important. So consider letting people in your own network know about the Hydrogen Nowcast. So until next time, this is Brian DeBruin wishing you health and prosperity. Goodbye. <laughs>